What's your name? Jacob Kornhauser. What's the name of your new book? The Cup of Coffee Club. When you're not writing a book about players who got a cup of coffee in the major leagues, what do you do? I'm an associate producer at Fox Sports. Coming up on this edition of Life Around the Seams, we continue with Author's Week. Very interesting book about a lot of modern-day Moonlight Grams. The stories of these players who logged one and only one game in the major leagues is interesting. And perhaps just as interesting is the story of why Jacob would want to track these guys down and write a book about them. Author Jacob Kornhauser is next on Life Around the Seams. Former Major League pitcher Jim Bouton once wrote, You spend a good piece of your life gripping a baseball, and in the end, it turns out it was the other way around all the time. Welcome to Life Around the Seams, a podcast about baseball people who have interesting stories from between the lines, and sometimes even more interesting stories outside the lines. Here's your host, Josh Sushan. Jacob, thank you so much for joining me. This is, I always love talking to authors. This is fantastic. Yeah, thanks for having me. Looking forward to diving into it. So again, uh, Moonlight Graham is a, is a famous <laughs> character from Field of Dreams or the Book Shoeless right. Joe, and his story is interesting. And what made you decide to find a bunch of other Moonlight Grahams? Yeah, first of all, I don't think a, like, you know, everyone even realizes when watching Field of Dreams and Moonlight Graham was this real guy that, you know, had debuted in 1905. Um, and he wasn't really the impetus for the idea, but obviously once kind of the seed of the idea was there, relating his story being kind of the most popular was, was important. But I was just throwing ideas around with, with a buddy of mine who uh, were both diehard baseball fans and I don't even remember why I kind of came to that idea, but it just like kind of randomly came to me. I said it and we kind of looked at each other like, oh, that might be a pretty good idea. I didn't know if it, I'd always wanted to write a book about, you know, something baseball related, but not, never had had like a subject that was robust enough. So sure enough, I started looking into it. There was enough players that had only played in one game that it was an interesting topic that I'd be able to get enough information on. But there weren't so many guys that, you know, this isn't some – uh, rare feat. Uh, so the fact that it was relatively rare, but not rare enough that I couldn't find anyone kind of made it that sweet spot for being able to tell these guys stories and still have it be cool. I wrote down this number of fewer than 150, which I probably wrote down reading your book. You right. ended up with 11 players. Why did you choose those 11? Yeah. So it's fewer than 150 in the last 50 or so years. Um, I kind of narrowed it that way because there were several hundred before that. Um, it was a little more common in older baseball, uh, but in the last hundred years or, or 50 years or so, there's been about 150. Um, and so I made a list of maybe 25 or 30 of guys just based on their backstory of research that I did kind of on the front end of guys that I would be interested in talking to. Um, and then of course, a handful didn't want to do it. A handful I couldn't get a hold of for whatever reason. Um, but I still knew that of that 25, I wanted to get roughly half and we settled on 11. Um, so once we got to that 11, um, 
reached out to everyone um, of, of that group um, and then started hearing their stories and all of them were as good or better uh, as I expected from just the background research that I had done. If you could uh, cite one or maybe two players or even three if you want, what, what was the strangest response when you contact somebody out of the blue <laughs> and say, I want to tell your story? Yeah, I don't know. I, I think probably Ron Wright. Um, so he is now a pharmacist in Utah. He played with the Mariners uh, in the early 2000s. And he had a story done, like he's, he's no stranger to the spotlight. Like he had kind of a New York Times story done about his career, um, a much shorter story, obviously. So he's kind of used to that, I guess, but it had been long enough um, that I had this convoluted way of finding him to contact him. So I ended up calling him, I think like at his pharmacy that he worked at or something ended up getting like his personal number from that. Um, so obviously, you know, he wasn't really expecting that kind of call. Um, and he was really cool about it. And we ended up, you know, being able to, to set something up. But um, I think he was probably most taken aback just because of the setting and kind of the lengths I had to go uh, <laughs> to be able to contact him. Was there anybody, and you don't have to use their name if you don't want to, who you contacted and they said, Scram, I'm, I'm done, tired about baseball. I don't want to talk about my career. Yeah, I mean, there weren't any that explicitly said that, but there were a couple that kind of, you know, you could tell were, were a little closer to the bitter side of the, the whole bittersweet spectrum that I tried to look at, you know, these guys' careers from. Um, so there were a few that kind of turned it down and just said, you know, I don't really want to want to talk about that phase of, of my life anymore and, and stuff like that. So. Luckily, that was only a few of them, though, and, and the 11 I talked to were, were gracious with their time and, and explaining their stories. Some of my friends and I were chatting yesterday on WhatsApp about the Michael Jordan documentary, and one yeah. of my friends had this interesting take, and I want to give him full credit, not just because <laughs> I'm going to force him to listen to this podcast, but uh, <laughs> my friend Ben Sachs, and he wrote the following, which I'm going to share. So Ben wrote, I feel like that with intense interview clips, some anecdotes, some snazzy editing, anyone's story would make a great sports doc. This Jordan content is kind of meh. It's like, yes, Jordan was super dominant and competitive, but they could make one of these shows about water badminton in Las Vegas or bike riding in Houston or a gym in New Jersey, and it would be stunning. It would be deep. And I'm done quoting Ben now. And I feel like your book kind of proves this. Everyone has a story. Some stories might be longer or more famous, but the job of the journalist is ultimately to find that story and tell it in a compelling way. And so as I try to think about the best way to phrase this question, I think it would maybe, what have you learned throughout this process about what is a story and how do you go about telling the story in the most compelling way? Yeah, I mean, I do think that uh, that's a good point in terms of, you know, telling these untold stories. That was something for me, you know, John Petorik is a guy um, who a lot of people were surprised didn't have kind of his own chapter because he's well known three for three reached base all five times at bat. Um, so he's a very famous example. But I thought enough people already knew his story to where I can mention him in, you know, the opening chapter kind of lays everything out. And then there's the individual chapters. But in terms of what I learned from these guys in terms of, you know, what makes their story compelling. I thought it was important to kind of one tie all of them together in what made them similar, highlight the differences in what made them different, even on this kind of similar trajectory, but highlight their lives leading up to that one game, obviously tell the story of the one game, but really in most of the chapters, it's a relatively short excerpt in terms of what they did in that one game. But then I think maybe most importantly, what they did afterwards um, and kind of how they dealt with, this really strange career trajectory where 
they get there for one game and then they're trying desperately to get back and they just don't know if they ever will. And obviously anyone that is featured in the book ultimately did not. So it's kind of this interesting mental game too, that all of them went through in terms of having made a major league debut, having played in the major league, something that everyone dreams of doing when they're young, but then having to fight tooth and nail to get back. And of course, uh, none of them ended up doing that. So I was making some notes as I was reading the book and one of the themes that I, that I discovered is that just the importance of, of that one game to justify what they had done. So, for example, if someone had played 10 years in the minor leagues and they had not made it to the majors, they might be more willing to keep trying and keep trying just to get that one game. But then once they've had that one game, it makes it a whole lot easier for them to then walk away. And, and again, maybe – I don't know if this is the right phrasing, but it justifies everything that they had done just for that one game. Right. Yeah, I think you're right um, about that, because if you look at a lot of these guys' stats um, kind of after their one major league game, they're way worse normally kind of in the minors than they had been. So maybe it is attributable um, to whether it be kind of mental relaxation or whatever in terms of, you know, having made it. Uh, maybe that's the case. Maybe it's the case that, uh, you know, they're distraught that they got sent back down after, after getting called up. But I did think it was something to examine, even just for the reader to ask themselves, you know, if you would be willing to put in all of this work in order to get one game in the major leagues. Because I think for people who the answer is yes for, those are the types of people that do at least get one game in the major leagues. And the ones that would say no, uh, obviously, are some of the guys that end up fizzling out in, in the minor leagues. So it's interesting to look at kind of the motivation for guys and whether or not one day in the major leagues, if you knew ahead of time would be enough to, to justify all the hard work that you put in. Yeah. And I think that's actually a, just an interesting talking point for people in general, whether they're playing baseball or another sport or something else on, you know, you, you hear that it's kind of a cliche. Oh, what I would do for just one day in the major leagues yeah. and your book kind of lays out, well, these are all things that they had to do. They didn't know it would be their one and only day in the major leagues. And do you really mean it? Do you literally mean that? Or you just figuratively say what I would do to spend one day in the major leagues? Right. Yeah. And I mean, we talked to a player, Chase Lambin as well, um, kind of in the opening chapter to illustrate that point, because he was a guy who was a career minor leaguer, you know, played a dozen or so years in the minors and was in AAA for a long period of time, was in the Mets organization. And he played the left side of the infield right when David Wright and Jose Reyes were coming up. So it's just, you know, a case of terrible timing. Um, and you hear that so much with some of these guys, even the ones that got one game that just had weird timing like that, that, that kind of didn't derail their careers, but certainly stunted the potential growth of it. Um, so I think it is interesting to compare a guy like that who almost made it, but never did to a guy who made it in one game, their careers are essentially the same, but one guy got to play just that one day in the major leagues, put on the uniform and and actually go out there and either pitch or, or appear at bat. Um, so I think it is interesting to look at kind of the juxtaposition of those guys and how they view their own careers, even though in 99% of ways, they're exactly the same. Yeah, Chase Lamb is interesting. I don't know him personally, but he played for the Albuquerque Isotopes, which is right. uh, the, the team that I broadcast the games for. He was there long before I joined, but uh, that did make me smile when I saw Chase Lamb. The, the other note that I had was how often 
the humanity of teammates comes across as stronger than the humanity of the manager. There's multiple times that the manager comes across like a total jerk and a teammate <laughs> comes across as the savior. You give the example of how John Mayberry volunteered to let Gary Martz bat for him. And that ended up being Gary Martz's only at bat. And then I also love the story about how Miguel Olivo pretended that he had a heat stroke <laughs> so that Matt yeah. Tupman could get into a game. Um, Miguel Olivo is probably most known for something that he does not want to be known for. And that's an incident with the isotopes and uh, on the field with a teammate. And I don't want to get into that, but um, I always thought that Miguel is just a, just a wonderful guy. And I hope that one day does not brand him for life or what type of person he is. And so it made me smile even more to know that Miguel pretended like he had a heat stroke so that a younger player could get into a game. Yeah, I guess uh, when you put it that way, yeah, the Royals managers that are highlighted in the book uh, don't come across great. Um, it just, I don't know. I obviously wasn't there and didn't know all of the context of it uh, as it was happening, but it certainly seemed like they just kind of didn't get it in terms of these guys who were clearly only going to be there for a short period of time and just like trying to get them in at bat, especially with Matt Tubman. It felt like it was almost like an antagonistic sort of relationship, but it was cool seeing you know, these veteran guys, they know how hard it is to get to the major leagues and they've been in those shoes. And I think they realize probably in both cases that these guys weren't going to be, you know, 10 year major league starters, especially in Matt's case, he even, you know, said as much, he was probably uh, a defensive catcher more than anything else. So for them to step up and make sure that, you know, they kind of manipulated some circumstances in order to get those guys at bats and for them to be able to say now that they got at bats in the major leagues is, is pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, even at the AAA level, there's numerous times that we'll have a player who's up from, say, extended spring training, and they just they just need a body, right? They just need some depth, mm. and they're really not there to, to get a lot of at-bats or playing time. And so, for the most part, they, they just sit on the bench and don't do anything until the AAA roster can get replenished. But the number of times that I see a manager go out of his way nowadays, maybe things have just changed, but... Mm. He, you know, whether it's Glenellen Hill with the isotopes or, or Lorenzo Bundy or Damon Berryhill in the past, like you could tell that, okay, I know this guy's going to get sent down tomorrow. I want to make sure they get into bat. I'm going to find a way to get them one at bat because it might be a similar situation where it's the only at bat that they get in AAA. And maybe the game is changing, but, but I, but it, I don't know. It just warms my heart when I see the humanity in people. Yeah, I don't know what it is. Maybe managers just kind of have heard enough of these stories and, and stuff like it to, you know, when you have the chance to do it, um, you do it. I know, obviously, you know, Jeff Bannister with the Rangers, uh, who's featured in the book. Um, I don't know any specific instances of that, but I'm sure that shaped uh, at least his outlook and some of his decisions, you know, with young players who may not be there for long in terms of, you know, getting them a few at bats and, and making sure that they get to play in the game. A big part of baseball is the relationship amongst brothers. Your brother, Dylan, was the editor of this mm -hmm. book. That seems really fun. Tell us about the dynamic of your brother, Dylan, editing your book. Yeah, so we've always had a good, like, give and take relationship where, you know, he is very good with prose and, um, you know, almost creative writing. And I'm more of the kind of nonfiction, uh, very like journalistic background. You know, I went to journalism school. That was kind of uh, what I did and what I studied. Um, so basically the process for me is just like reporting. And a lot of this, you know, if you saw some of the earlier drafts would have been um, very much more straightforward reporting sort of stuff. So then when we collaborated on after all the stories were really told and structured, um, it was something where we wanted to tie in 
you know, themes that were common between these guys and really have kind of an overarching kind of a, a 30,000 foot view of everything um, to make people feel like, yes, these guys have all of their individual stories and all of them are interesting for, you know, their own reasons, but also tie in aspects of certain guys into other guys' stories really to show some of the similarities and, and what all of this quote unquote cup of coffee club has gone through collectively and individually. Um, so I think we, we trade off pretty well because we kind of have these two distinct backgrounds in terms of being able to put stories together that, that are compelling and, and that do justice to the people that we talk about. Who's the older brother? Who's the younger brother? What's the age gap? I'm older uh, and he is a little less than three years uh, younger. Okay. So you guys basically got to grow up together. Right. Right. Okay. Um, another one of the brother themes that I uh, jotted down, um, I really enjoyed the chapter about Larry Younts. He is the older brother of Robin Younts. And when you're the older brother and you get a lot of attention and then the younger brother ends up making the Hall of Fame, that provides <laughs> an interesting dynamic. But I just love that how Larry became the agent for his younger brother, Robin. Yeah, his is an interesting story because Larry really excelled kind of outside of the realm of baseball, just in real estate and everything in Arizona as well. Um, but in terms of taking his brother under his wing and I guess being able to put his disappointment of his own career aside, essentially, uh, and then negotiating with Bud Seeley when he was uh, the GM and the, or the owner rather of of the Brewers and obviously future uh, baseball commissioner, they kind of befriended each other through that. So then he had a relationship with the commissioner of baseball. So he just had kind of a, an interesting connection to baseball, even beyond uh, his, his one appearance in the majors. And I thought that was more unique than, than all the other guys because his connection to baseball was almost higher level than anyone else, but his interest and his success was almost completely removed from baseball in terms of, you know, being in, in real estate and everything. So uh, his, his backstory in terms of uh, what he went on to do after his playing career was, was really cool. Yeah. And for the playing career, correct me if I'm wrong, but he's the one who was officially brought into the game as a reliever. And then as he was warming up, felt pain in his arm and actually never delivered a pitch. Right. Right. Yeah. So he, it, he was only 22 years old at the time, uh, obviously was taking an abundance of caution, didn't want to you know, derail his career figures. He's going to have plenty of other opportunities because uh, he was a pretty hot prospect at the time, but then injuries just kind of did him in um, as they so often do with guys like that. But he's the only player in major league history to be credited with uh, one or more appearances and not throw a single pitch. So his is unique in that way too, just in his one game. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing is, is I was reading the chapter about him is that, you know, he had been in the army reserves and so now right. he gets added back to the roster and, Man, I don't want to. I don't want to kick dirt on pitching coaches from the seventies. <laughs> Obviously, we know a lot more about how you, about how you take care of pitchers. But I just feel like that it was just almost incompetent that you would have somebody who's been in the Army reserves and then you bring them to the major leagues and then you don't have them throw simulated games or bullpen sessions <laughs> to see how they are. Like it, it's unfathomable to me that you could bring a pitcher into the game not knowing that his arm is hurting. Yeah, so he had his, like, week in the Army Reserve. He basically, they called up a bunch of people for September call-ups, and then uh, he had his week that he had to serve in the Army Reserve, and I guess there they didn't, like, let him bring a mitt and a, and a ball or whatever to, you know, stay loose. So he basically had a week of just his arm flattening out after pitching an entire season at AAA. Um, so then he goes to the majors, and like you said, yeah, I don't think they, they really did any massaging for his arm. Um, and then it was super stiff, and 
they didn't know as much uh, as they do now, clearly, letting guys throw, you know, 250, 300 pitches in a game. Uh, and, yeah, and 22 years old, they figure, I guess, he had a rubber arm. But um, I don't know if that instance kind of set off the chain reaction of, of future injuries that he had, but it certainly kept him from his one game. Had they maybe held him out for another week or so, uh, he, he might have had a chance to get into a game and, and not had the sore arm. At the end of the book, you do some smaller stories about players who had just one game in the major leagues. And you mentioned earlier about how there was a bunch, you know, at the early, at the turn of the century in the 1900s. Right. Um, I found it really fascinating, the story of the eight different players who all played in their one and only major league game at the same time. And that is because Ty Cobb had been suspended by the American League. And even though Ty Cobb had this reputation that his teammates hated him, they all went on strike in his defense. And so the right. Detroit Tigers were scrambling to try to field a team <laughs> for the day. And they cobbled together a bunch of players from, from that city. They got slaughtered. But the part that I love the most is how these players use different aliases, yep. including the guy whose name is Billy Graham. And he used <laughs> yep. uh, Maharg because that is Graham backwards. <laughs> I love this story. Yeah, this story, so for the book as a whole, I didn't want to kind of like, I don't know, have that much, um, you know, poking fun in terms of the uniqueness of these one game players, because obviously, you know, they devoted their whole careers. But this was the one exception where this story was kind of just laugh out loud funny to me as I was researching it, because one, none of these guys really had ever dreamt of playing in the major leagues, or at least done the prerequisite work to, to make it to the major league. So I didn't feel like I was doing them a disservice um, in kind of recognizing their careers for what they were. Uh, but this was just such a comedy of errors in terms of a classic Ty Cobb story, getting suspended, then his teammates going on strike, the owner being threatened with like a $5,000 fine, which obviously at that time was a ton of money um, if they didn't field a team. So then he just goes out in Philadelphia and finds a bunch of you know, college players essentially to, to feel the team pays them, I think 50 bucks a piece uh, to, to play in the game. And they're playing the defending champion, uh, Philadelphia athletics as well. And Connie Mack, uh, obviously the, the longtime owner uh, coach and GM uh, just the coach at the time, uh, he was kind of miffed at that. This was in back in 1912. Um, so he basically said, you know, just try to beat them by as much as you can. Uh, so they kept it close for the first couple innings or closer than you would expect. And then uh, the athletics just ran away with it. So it was really kind of weird. And the starting pitcher actually went on to become a priest, a Catholic priest. And uh, he's still to this day, the only uh, eventual priest who played in a major league game. So that's kind of a weird, interesting tidbit. And he allowed the most earned runs in a single start in, in major league history in this game as well. So there's a lot of major league firsts, a lot of major league lasts and, probably a lot of major league onlys uh, in this game as well. It's just one of those things that you laugh at in baseball where you see something that you don't see every day and that you'll probably never see again. And seems to happen quite a bit, especially in early baseball. There's so many stories you can read about that are just laugh out loud, funny, kind of like this one. Yeah. And then this guy, Billy Graham, who again uses Maharg as right. his alias. And then he actually comes back and, and makes it to the major leagues four years later. Yeah, that was weird to find out. And there's like some debate of like, was this the same guy? Like most people tend to agree now that it was the same guy because he had used the alias like that before. But it's just such early days of baseball that it's really weird, um, you know, that he plays this one game, 1912. By all, for all intents and purposes, he has no business playing in a major league game. But then four years later, he gets into another one. So, you know, 
he wasn't even technically, you know, a cup of coffee club player because he played in two games. Uh, so this is really bizarre. And I would love to, you know, have some type of research come out that really definitively kind of tells his story because so long ago, we, we kind of know the games he was credited with playing in, but I'd be interested to know kind of the gap between 1912 and 1916, kind of what he was doing and how, if he did play in those two games, how he was able to do that. Yeah, so I started to, to make notes on, okay, what would my fake name be or what would be my <laughs> alias? And so Sushan backwards is Nokus, N-O-H-C-U-S. <laughs> so if there's ever a story out there with the last name of Nokus, that might be me not wanting to use my real name on something. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess if you're going to uh, go backwards, Mahard doesn't sound all that bad, but it is funny that it was only a few years after, you know, Moonlight Graham, and it's the same last name. It's kind of weird. So um, I like to ask this question of, of authors all the time. What was your go-to place to actually write? Are you a coffee shop guy? Are you uh, quiet um, in, in like a home desk? Do you have music? Uh, set the scene for the environment for when you're doing most of the writing. Yeah, so when I'm actually writing, I usually like it to be relatively silent. Maybe some, you know, like classical music, some type of focusy music um, playing while I'm actually writing. But usually I'll do most of that um, while I'm doing kind of my chapter outlines and I'm kind of outlining the book. So the coffee shop type stuff, I'll, I'll go and do that when I'm outlining, kind of can just free flow, not have to worry about kind of um, the structure and, and the grammar of the actual writing where I, ha I feel like I have to focus way, way more. Um, but yeah, I'll go to a coffee shop, listen to, you know, classical, whether it be piano, uh, movie soundtracks, like movie scores, that type of thing kind of gets me in the zone of just being focused and really um, feeling like I can structure things the right way. And then once it comes time to actually write and I have those notes in front of me, uh, normally I like silence and can kind of just really focus in on the actual storytelling aspect of things. What were the best places for your research, whether it's online or in libraries? What were your go-to places? Because this is hard research right. when it's someone who's only played one game in the majors. Right. Um, so Sabre, Society of American Baseball Research, is a great one, um, especially for some of these uh, stranger kind of out there stories. They have really good kind of supplementary um, storytelling in terms of like background information on guys. So that was uh, invaluable in terms of some of the older stories that I couldn't find much stuff on. And then normally I had baseball reference be kind of my first screening process, so to speak, in terms of researching whether these guys' stories were uh, able to be told in a, in a compelling way, so to speak. And so that was kind of the first screening process. And as long as that was something that was relatively interesting, then I kind of followed just, you know, an online path of finding other stories, other clips of these guys. Um, whether it be just these small time newspapers, uh, in the case of Ron Wright finding, you know, obviously he had a, a New York Times story done on him. Um, so it was almost like a meandering uh, sort of thing where it was following these stories. And then obviously you can only base uh, your interviews on what you know so far. And then you can kind of go down different lines once you're talking to the guy. So I was very happy that for most of these guys, we did go down avenues that I hadn't heard of before and hadn't seen in print before. So I was able to kind of use these known little tidbits about them and, and known facts about them to guide our interviews. But then through the interviews was able to, to find out some stories and then through the book, tell some stories that hadn't been told before. 
Well, congratulations. Um, this was uh, this is impressive. It's hard enough to write a book, and you gave yourself quite the challenge for the first book of of your life, and uh, and you did a really wonderful job. So, uh, congratulations on that. I, I enjoyed it. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. All right. Uh, any other thoughts that uh, that I forgot to add that, that you want people to know about this book? Not a ton. Um, I would just say, just for me personally, I think that more guys, we talked uh, off the top or I alluded to kind of this bittersweet spectrum. And I assumed that most of the guys would be closer to the bitter side, just because I kind of think in my head, you know, I would always be asking myself, what if, uh, you know, this happened or this happened. And certainly all of them kind of have an aspect of that. But by and large, I think they were closer to the sweet side and are able now removed from the game in various degrees. You know, obviously the oldest story was from the 50s. The most recent story was from about 10, 12 years ago. Um, But the guys who are more removed seem to be closer to the sweet side of the spectrum and being able to appreciate their their short career in the major leagues, even if it was just uh, for one game. So I found that refreshing that uh, they were closer to the sweet than the bitter side. One more question I actually forgot to ask. I I went down the internet rabbit hole trying to find (laughs) the answer to this question myself and just – I know the phrase cup of coffee. I've always heard that phrase cup of coffee. It's a very accurate phrase for someone who has a very brief career in the major leagues. Have you ever been able to figure out who said it first or where this originated? No, there's no definitive origin story. Um, So there's a few different like claims to it basically in print. um, I believe around the sixties or seventies. And so obviously whatever was printed first kind of has that claim, but then there are other claims that other people kind of, we're using it just, you know, in, in regular talk also. Um, so the general rule of thumb tends to be in print. It was around like the seventies. Um, but there's no definitive, there's no definitive answer, uh, unfortunately as of yet. Well, the definitive answer is that the first book about guys who had a yes. cup of coffee <laughs> was written by Jacob Kornhauser. Thank you. Once again, a uh, wonderful job on this book. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. That is Jacob Kornhauser. And this is life around the scenes.